Hi, this is John Ankerberg, and today I want to present to you my very, very good friend, Dr. Wayne Barber. For 18 years, he was pastor of the huge Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He was co-teacher with Kay Arthur for 14 years at Precept Ministries. He studied with Dr. Spiro Zodiades and co-hosted with him the national radio and TV program, New Testament Light, for 10 years. Wayne has taught the message of living grace, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, all around the world. He is president, founder, and principal speaker of Living Grace Ministries. And in February of 2011, he returned to Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, as senior pastor. Wayne's authored several books. The most recent one is entitled, Living Grace, Letting Jesus Be Jesus in You. And he has also co-authored The Following God, series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber. Would you turn with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 as we continue in a little series I've entitled To Each His Own. To Each His Own. This is part six of that series as we've been walking down through the gifts that Paul mentions beginning back in verse eight. I continue to be amazed and overwhelmed at the fact that God would let me be a part of what he's up to. Do you continue to be amazed at that? That God says, you know, you can't do my work, but I want to do my work through you. I love the, the, the ones that came to Jesus and Jesus, what must we do to do the works of God? He said, this is the work of God that you believe on me. That word believe means not just comprehend who I am, not just understand what I say, but in other words, to obey me. Belief affects your behavior. You don't believe anything unless it affects your behavior. Line up under me, surrender to me. That's the work I'm looking for. And then you become the vessel through which I do my works. Many times I've referred in this series and another series to the discovery the apostle Paul made in this very truth. To realize the man who said in Philippians three, according to the law I'm found blameless, for that man to be so broken to come to realize that he couldn't do the works of God, that God had to do the works through him, that he said in Romans 15 and verse 17, therefore in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. And then in verse 18, he says, for I would not presume, I would not dare speak of anything. The word speak has the idea, I wouldn't break the silence in a quiet room with anything that I could do for God. But I would speak of that which Christ, he says, has accomplished through me. But I want you to know something. Even though God chooses to use us as the vessels through which he does his work, through which he accomplishes his purposes, even though he does that, then when he does his work, it will bear his mark on it. This is what Paul is dealing with in Corinthians. Paul goes on in verse 18 of Romans 15 and says, that what God accomplished through him resulted in Gentiles coming to know Christ, Gentiles being born again. Paul is saying, when I'm a vessel surrendered to Christ and Christ is working through me, it never draws attention to me, it always draws attention to him. And what he does through me is eternal in its effect. It is not something so emotional and ecstatic that it becomes fleshly. But what God does has an identifying mark upon it. You see in Corinth, many things were going on. It's very obvious from our text. Possibly extraordinary things were going on in their midst. Manifestations were happening and people were attributing them all to God. And Paul is intent on correcting the era that's in that church. I do not believe, have never believed and continue to be adamant about it that Paul is not teaching gifts. I do not believe he's teaching gifts in 1 Corinthians 12. I believe he's correcting error in an immature and ignorant church, a church that would not grow up, a church that would not attach themselves to Christ. His main thesis in verses eight down in what we've studied seems to be, yes, God does do his manifestations through people. God does manifest himself through his own. Yes, he does. And in the midst of all the stuff that's going on in Corinth, it was like a circus. In the midst of it all, yes, God does manifest himself. 
God does speak through several. In verse eight, he says, to one he gives the word of wisdom and to another of the same kind he gives the word of knowledge. It'll always have to do with scripture. It'll always have to do with truth, truth made practical and truth made clear. God does that. But as verse seven says, it's for the benefit of the whole body. It's not for someone's personal emotional gratification. It's so that the body might be edified. And then he goes on, he says, yes, there are those extraordinary things that God does. And that's the list we find ourselves this morning. He starts it in verse nine with a little word. He lists five things and they're set apart by the word in verse nine, heteros, to another of a different kind. Then they're linked together by the word alos, to another of the same kind. Five things in the extraordinary category of manifestations that God from time to time has chosen to do through his people. He's chosen at times to overwhelm a person with supernatural faith. Now, some people think that that's the same faith that we all have. No, he, he, he uses, he, don't have an article here. He uses the fact that this faith is the extraordinary faith. Like in chapter 13, the faith to remove mountains. And he does that. Can he do it today? Yes, sir, he can do it today. But he's chosen throughout the time period of history to do this in particular believers' lives. He's chosen to heal people, not in the, only in the miraculous ordinary, which we overlook daily, but also in the extraordinary ways which are recorded in scripture. He chooses to do that from time to time. He chooses to use people as his vessels through which he accomplishes this work. He chooses to do those extraordinary miracles that are also in the list of the five there in verse nine and 10. He chooses to do that from time to time. He chooses to prophesy through people in an extraordinary way. And when I say extraordinary, I mean he, he even had Agabus to prophesy and to foretell the future. He even has others to stand and have an immediate, instantaneous revelation from God. And this is an extraordinary part of prophecy. This is not the prophecy of Romans 12. This is a different kind of prophecy. This is extraordinary prophecy. He chooses to do that from time to time. But in the list of the five gifts mentioned in verses 9 and 10 of 1 Corinthians 12, if you're looking for a consistent pattern of this throughout history, you will not find it except in the three offices that no longer exist in the church of Jesus Christ today. The office of the apostle, the extraordinary office, you'll find these extraordinary things in this list of five. With the office of the evangelist, you'll find these five things in this extraordinary list there. With the office of the prophet, you'll find these extraordinary gifts that are done there. As a consistent pattern from time to time, you'll see it over and over again. But when you leave those three extraordinary offices, which disappears to me off the pages of scripture, then you have to come back to the fact that God does not have a pattern of doing that anymore. We're told today that we have one more gift. It's the last one in the list of the five. And remember, this is the category all by itself. You have the speaking gifts. Yes, God manifests himself that way. You have the extraordinary gifts. And we've gone through the list of four of those. And today we come to the last one of these extraordinary gifts. And that is the distinguishing of spirits. In verse 10, he says, and to another, the distinguishing of spirits. Now remember what I'm saying. When God manifests himself through a believer, a vessel through which he's doing his work and accomplishing his purposes, it will always be, it'll always bear rather, it'll always bear his mark upon it. There'll be an identifying mark on what God does through his people. Now in this, these gifts of the sermons, you'll find that this is, this is also the plural as we found in other gifts there in that list. So ordinary discernment is implied, but I think he's pointing to something even better. So there's two things here that I want us to look at this morning to talk about the distinguishing of the spirits as we continue to look at the five gifts that are the extraordinary gifts, not the gifts that God just does all the time. You're not born again with these gifts. This is when God chooses to do it, when he does it, where he does it, and for his own purposes, he does it, okay? Now, first of all, as we enter into it, you've got to, you can't overlook the miraculous ordinary. We all must need, realize the need for discernment. That's the first thing we've got to look at today. All of us need to realize the need that we have for discernment. There was a need for discernment in Corinth among the believers. Evidently, some of the believers in Corinth, among them, there were many extraordinary things that God was doing. Some was of God, but much was not of God. You see, even though it was linked to him, 
And so in, in the midst of all these manifestations, in the midst of all this that's going on, somebody's got to have the discernment to say, this is of God and this is of the devil. This is of the flesh. Somebody's got to have that ability. We need it today as much as they needed it in Corinth and they desperately needed it in Corinth. God was working in the midst of all of it. Perhaps God had healed some people extraordinarily. Perhaps God had done some miracles extraordinarily. Perhaps God had had somebody to stand up and to prophesy in an extraordinary way, but God was not in everything that was going on. And they had to be able to draw the line and say, hey, yes, this is of God. No, this is not of God. Because Satan was also working. Notice the gift, distinguishing of spirits. Now this is where we need, need discernment to know is it of God or is it of the devil? Do we have the ability to draw a line and say that? You know, I don't know why it is that in America we don't seem to understand that Satan can do extraordinary things. Why don't we understand that? P.N. Curian from India came over and he said, Wayne, I've seen more people healed in pagan cults than you've ever seen over here in a healing meeting in America. You see, Satan can do extraordinary things. Who do you think mimicked the miracles of Moses when he stood before Pharaoh all the way down to the death of the firstborn. Somebody mimicked those miracles. And in whose power? It certainly wasn't of God's. The apostle Paul says of the Antichrist who's gonna come one day to this earth and perhaps already is alive, who knows? But one day the Antichrist is coming and it says in 2 Corinthians chapter, or Thessalonians chapter two and verse nine. Matter of fact, Turn over there because I want you to see this. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 9. And I want you to notice a phrase in this verse that's very important for us to understand. Satan loves signs and wonders. Anything that's extraordinary. Anything that can perhaps draw attention to him as if he's God because he wants to be as God. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 9. Paul says in verse 9 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says, that is, the one whose coming is in accord, now look here, with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders. It's in accord with, notice the phrase, the activity of Satan. Satan is the one who's gonna try to deceive the elect in the last days by the signs and the wonders and the miracles. There, he's able to do those kinds of things. Now what we've got to do is what the Corinthians needed to do is to have a discernment and say, no, this is of God. Uh, no, that's not of God. Draw that line. This is this. That is that. We're gonna have to learn this truth, folks. We're gonna have to learn it today as much as they needed to learn it back then. Is that we're never to judge the genuineness of the spirits by what they're able to perform. Never, never. Even if on the surface these seem to be extraordinary manifestations of power, that does not mean it's God. That's the way America has been duped. That's the way Corinth was duped. The devil will do whatever it takes to deceive the elect. Now, behind every work is the influence of either the Holy Spirit of God or the evil demonic spirits that's in this world. Are you saying, Wayne, that a Christian can have a demon? Absolutely not. No, sir. But the influence of the demonic around us, it affects our flesh. And when we're walking under the flesh and we're under the influence of the evil spirit that, that's in this world, we call them demons. Satan's fallen angels that, 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 in, that, that live on this earth. Just like our human spirit, I believe the scripture teaches that these demonic spirits must inhabit some kind of body. Look over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 2. A lot of people don't seem to see this and maybe you don't agree with me, but you check it out. Second Corinthians chapter five and verse two. I was studying with Brother Spiros one time and something just popped out at me and I, and I hung on to it and have hung on to it for a long time. Second Corinthians chapter five and verse two. And it's very important that we're talking about the human spirit now. We're talking about something a little different. We're not talking about demonic spirits, but there's a, a phrase made in here that, that grabbed my attention. It says in verse two, for indeed in this house, this tabernacle, this body, we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. In other words, the spirit always longs to be clothed. In verse three, inasmuch as we having put it on, this spiritual body that we're gonna have one day shall not be found naked. It appears to me that demonic spirits, not a whole lot unlike the human spirit, need to be clothed in a body. They're here on this earth, but where are they found? Hollywood says that there are spirits floating around. 
They make your windows do funny things. They, they make funny sounds in your house. I don't see that in scripture. I feel like they have to be inhabited to something. They have to have a body around them. They inhabit people on this earth. Now, if that's true, and if I'm correct in my, my thinking on this, then Ephesians tells us the kind of people that they inhabit. They inhabit the bodies of unbelievers. Look in Ephesians chapter two and verse one. The bodies of unbelievers. They cannot inhabit a believer because the Holy Spirit inhabits the believer. And I will never, ever buckle under to the teaching that a Christian can have a demon. I do not believe that. I've gone over it and over it and over it from this pulpit. I'm not gonna do it again this morning. I do not agree with that. But I do believe that the demons on this earth do inhabit the bodies of the unbelieving. It says in verse one of Ephesians two, and you were dead in your trespasses and your sins. This is the condition all of us were in before Christ found us. We did not find him. In verse two it says, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working, look where he's working, in the sons of disobedience. Now, if I'm correct on this, that a spirit on this earth, a demonic spirit must inhabit a body, then the bodies that he inhabits are the unbelievers, then the next assumption that I'm gonna make is, what better body of an unbeliever to inhabit than that of a false teacher? Which is exactly what was going on in Corinth. You had people absolutely, totally filled with Satan in the church of Corinth. And there were many things that were going on in Corinth. There were many manifestations of the spiritual world, but many of those things were not of God and the people did not have the discernment to draw the difference. As long as it was a miracle, it must be of God, perhaps they were saying, just like we do in America today. But that does not mean it's of God just because it's miraculous. The one thing that Satan wants to be is like God. That's what he's always wanted to be. This is why it's so important that we must have discernment. He wants to come across as an angel of light. He wants you to think of him as God. The word distinguishing in verse 10, again, is in the plural. It's like the word spirits is in the plural. And we have already seen this. This must be interpreted as we have interpreted the other gifts that were in the plural in the list of five found in verse nine through verse 10. As with the gifts of healings, there is no gift of healing. It's gifts, plural, of healings, plural. As with the effecting of miracles. The effecting is in the plural and also the word miracle is in the plural. It shows us one thing, and again, we, we need to make sure we understand this, that nobody can go to this gift, these gifts in the five listed in verse nine and 10, hang a shingle on their door and say, I have this gift, come to me, I'll help you. They cannot do that. These are the gifts, and they're in the plural, that, that God chooses to give when he chooses to give them, and if he chooses to give them, and for his own purpose that he chooses to give them. He takes them away as, as immediate, most of the time, as he gives them. The word distinguishing is the word diacresis. Dia through, crisis from crino, which means to distinguish. And again, to draw a line between something and say this is this and that is that. And when he puts the word spirits with it, this is of God's spirit, this is of the evil spirits. This, there's a line drawn. There's gotta be a distinguishing. There's gotta be a discernment that's made. Now included in this because it's plural as we've seen in the other plurality of these gifts mentioned are the miraculous ordinary discernments that God gives us every day. We've gotta include that. I do think he moves it to a higher degree in this list, but you must include that ordinary discernment. All of us, when we live a surrender to Christ and attached to his word, obedient to his word, have discernment between good and evil. Every one of us sitting in here, we can have that if we'll just grow up, stop attaching ourselves to men, start attaching ourselves to Christ and his word, God will give us that discernment. Turn to Hebrews chapter five and verse 12. Now I want you to make sure we understand this because this is included, if it's in the plural, you gotta cover the whole base. And this, this is miraculous in itself, but we never seem to think of it as miraculous. The extraordinary though goes even a step beyond that. And I'll explain that in a few moments. Oh, that we need people to grow up in the word of God. Oh, how Paul was grieved with the church of Corinth. The best taught church in scripture, but the most immature because they would not surrender to what they knew. It says in Hebrews chapter five and verse 12, a very similar situation that we find in Corinth. For though by this time you ought to be teachers. I had a man walk up to me one time in a meeting when I quoted that verse. And he said, does that mean we ought to all go out and be teachers? <laughs> I said, good grief, no. What it means is you've got enough information that if you had to be, you could be a teacher. That's what he's talking about. 
He says, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, the ABCs. You ought to be way down here, but somebody's got to go back and put you back in the nursery. Somebody's got to teach you the ABCs all over again. And you have come to need, perfect tense, something's happened in your life and you have come to need milk instead of solid food. You used to be on solid food, but now you have to go back and be on milk. Now, what in the world is going on at this, with these people? Verse 13, for everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he's a babe. The word accustomed means he's not skilled in it. And in verse 14 it says, but solid food is for the mature. The mature, the word there doesn't mean perfection, but it means the accomplishment of a goal. People who have come to hear, but people that are doing what they know. People that are surrendered to what God has said to them in the word. Who because of practice have their senses trained, now watch this, to discern good and evil. And the word good means that which comes from God, the word evil, that which comes from obviously the flesh or from the devil. And therefore they can draw a line and say, this is of God, this is not. This is of God, this is not. And who are those people that can do that? The mature. Now folks, I want to tell you something. I've threatened many times to carry a little chain of pacifiers around with me because there are a lot of Christians who just won't grow up. They've been in the church for a long time and they, they say they've been Christians for a long time, they just won't grow up. You just want to hand them a pacifier, just go, go, sit on, go suck on that thing, get over in the corner. That's the way you feel. They just won't grow up. They have no discernment. They have no discernment. It's only for those who are growing up, those who have attached themselves to the word of God, those who are living in absolute surrender. God gives to them the ability to draw a line and say this is this and that is that. Now the word diacresis translated to discern in Hebrews 5 and verse 14 is the same word we're looking at in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 10. So when he talks about this in the plural, you've got to understand, I've got to understand, that he implicit in this teaching is that all of us can have discernment between the things that are of God and the things that are of the devil. We can have that discernment simply by living surrendered to the word of God. And that's miraculous in itself. All of us have the ability, if we would just live that way, to test the spirits. John says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Don't believe every spirit. In other words, don't believe somebody who stands up in front of you and either says something or does something that you think calls attention to God. Don't believe it because behind him there's a power working. It's either of God or it's of the flesh or of the devil. So therefore, don't believe it just because you see it. Back up. And he says, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, how do you test the spirits? How do you know that somebody is of God? How do you know that what he does? What's the identifying mark on him? Because if, if Satan can do the extraordinary and God can do the extraordinary, then how do you draw that line? Well, you don't if you're not surrendered to the word of God. But if you're living that way, then you can easily and quickly discern where a man's coming from. Look in Romans chapter eight. And we see a list of things that we could use as a test to test the spirit of a person. What's motivating this person? Where is this person coming from? Man, they had as many fakes in the church of Corinth as we have today in the 20th century. And we've got to see this. But only those who are living surrendered to God's word even have the understanding of how to draw the line between this is of God and this is of the devil. Romans chapter 8 is that marvelous chapter that obviously follows chapter 7, which follows chapter 6. And when you put them together as a unit, it's a beautiful teaching there. Chapter eight is not what we can do for God, but what God can do through us. And when we're led, when we're living controlled by the spirit of God, Romans 8, 4. The first thing you note about a person, if you're testing the spirit that he's under, whether he's under the control of God or whether he's under control of the evil spirit, he does not walk according to the flesh. This is not perfection, this is predictability. A person who's living up under the power of the Spirit of God makes mistakes, but he immediately deals with those things because he's living up under the Word of God. He's living up under the power of the Holy Spirit. It says in Romans 8, 4, in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, in us, in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. <laughs> the Spirit honors the Word. If we honor the Word, we honor the Spirit. Therefore, there's something about our lifestyle that can immediately be seen that we're of God. In Romans 8, 7, not only does he, he live according to that way, he walks or he obeys the word of God. He obeys the word of God. It says in verse 7, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. 
So this person has already discovered the freedom to even obey the word of God. Romans 8, 10 and 11, he's alive with the life of God. If you don't understand that statement, then you need to grow up and mature. When you start living this way, you begin to spot people that are absolutely vivaciously alive with the life of God. It's something different than their own physical life. It's something alive in them. You can see it in their face, you can see it in their life. It says in verse 10, and if Christ is in you, Though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Verse 11, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who indwells you. He'll always be alive that way because of the life that is within him. Romans 8, 13, he daily maintains that life as he's learned to mortify the deeds of his flesh to his surrender to Christ. Verse 13 says, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's how you maintain the life that is within you is by that surrender to him. Romans 8, 17 and 18, he's not characterized with emotional and ecstatic experiences. That's not how you know him. But the way you know him is by his willingness to be silent and to suffer for Christ in his silence. It says in verse 17, and if children heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And then Paul goes on and says, for I consider, he's one of them, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. You see, he suffered, he's willing to suffer. Man, I hear a message being preached today that says you don't have to suffer for God anymore. You don't have to suffer for Christ. That's ridiculous. In Romans 8, 21 through 25, he lives with the hope of Christ's return and the future glorified body. That's just what keeps him going every day. Christ is you. Are you coming today? And one day I'm going to have a glorified body. I'm going to be freed from the presence of sin. In Romans 8, 26, he looks to the Spirit. Now listen to this. Not to help him escape his infirmities, but to help him in the midst of his infirmities. He doesn't live with this duped idea that the more he surrenders to Christ, the less infirmities he's gonna have. Verse 26 says, and in the same way, the spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He knows he's got a prayer partner, and he knows that whatever he goes through, the spirit of God is there to enable him to make it through. In Romans 8, 28, he doesn't live as a victim. He lives as a victor because he knows something. It says that we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. In Romans 8, 34, he knows that he is neither condemned nor forsaken, but that Christ intercedes on his behalf. Verse 34 says, who is the one who condemns? Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. And in verse 35 through 39, he develops the thought that he knows that even if he sins, even if he fails, nothing that he ever does is gonna shatter the relationship God has given to him in his son, Jesus Christ. Because he ends and says, who can separate us from the love of Christ? He says, I'm convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Now you find a person who marries in to the lifestyle that Romans 8 talks about and you've just tested the spirit that motivates that person's life. And if you know the word of God and live surrendered to the word of God, God gives us a discernment to look beyond the extraordinary, to look beyond the miracle, to go beyond the emotion, to go beyond the ecstatic experience that you're having and check out where it's coming from. Believers that are mature have this discernment. But believers who are immature hadn't got a clue like it was in Corinth. Behind every person is a spirit, somehow. If it's a lost person, he lives in him, most likely, the demonic spirit. If it's a saved person, it's his flesh being influenced by the demonic world that we live in. Or he's being influenced by the Holy Spirit that lives within him. All of us can test the spirit in a very common, unique way in Scripture. And we must be doing it on a daily basis. I'll tell you something, folks. Not only do they need to hear this in Corinth, they need to hear this today in America. We need to hear it. We need to be drawing a line and saying, this is of God and this is not of God. We need that discernment. Yesterday I was up absolutely appalled. Matter of fact, it was last night we had been out and Diana brought to me 
the newspaper, Chattanooga Free Press. And it had some quotes there by Paul Crouch who owns TBN. And the only reason I mention his name and what he does is because it's in the paper and you can read it for yourself. These are things he said about people that hold to doctrine. He said on one occasion, theology or truth is just not important. It is religious entertainment. This is spoken right out of his mouth, quoted yesterday in the Chattanooga Free Press. On another occasion, he spoke to the worldwide audience by stating, heretic hunters, those guys who spend their lives straightening us all out doctrinally, they're all going straight to hell. On another occasion, he said, I refuse to argue any longer with any of you out there. Don't even call me if you want to argue doctrine. If you want to straighten somebody out over here, if you want to criticize Kenneth Copeland for his preaching on faith, Kenneth Copeland in the little book Christianity in Crisis and in the tape is a man who made the statement that God spoke to him one morning and told him he could have been the redeemer of the world. He also calls God the biggest failure that ever lived in a quote that was in the paper yesterday. He says, are you gonna criticize the preaching of your dad Hagen? That's the way the article read. He says, get out of my life. I don't wanna ever talk to you or hear. I don't wanna see your ugly face. It came out of his mouth. He goes on to say of those who think doctrine is important, I think they are damned and on their way to hell and I don't think there's any redemption for them. I say the hell with you. That was what was quoted in the Chattanooga Free Press yesterday, spoken by a man who says he's under the influence of the Holy Spirit of God. You tell me we're not living in a day when we need to draw a line and say this is this and that is that. And friend, if you're not growing in the word of God, do you realize how duped you already are? We don't have any discernment unless we're gonna live surrendered to what we know and implicit in the teaching on the distinguishing of the spirits is the miraculous ordinary discernment that God gives to the believer when he lives surrendered to what the word of God has to say. I could go on and on and on. But friend, we need to grow up in the word of God. They needed to grow up in Corinth. That was the whole context of the book. We need to grow up in America. We're not much different. It's like reading the newspaper when you study this book. Exactly what was going on in Corinth then is going on in American church today. But secondly, we've got to make a change here because we, we see that first need for distinguishing of spirits. We all need that. And that's something that can come. And every believer can have that. And it must be implicit in the fact that the word is plural. But secondly, we need to understand the different categories of discernment. Because there are two categories, I believe, that's being brought out here. We must ask ourselves, is the discernment found in Hebrews 5.14? The exact same discernment that he's going toward in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 10. With the plural, I do not think so. I think he's headed to a different kind of discernment here because he puts it in the list of five gifts that have the extraordinary tag attached to each one of them. What Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 10 to me, it's a total different category of discernment. It's, it's to a higher level in a different way that God gives discernment. I believe that he refers to the extraordinary discernment of spirits, the kind that was so exemplified in the early officers of the church and they were so desperate for it in their day. In my understanding, the gift mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12, 10, it's much like the first gift. Isn't it interesting? The first one is faith. The last one is distinguishing of spirits. Look at what's in the middle. <laughs> when you have to believe God for healing, miracles, and this kind of thing, and then at the end of it, he says, distinguishing of spirits. What a beautiful package he puts together here. And the first one is faith, that we all have faith. Is he speaking of that faith? Well, obviously, it's implied. Or is he speaking about the extraordinary faith that God tends at moment from moment in time to give to the person that he chooses when he's overwhelmed with something so that it'll be for some eternal purpose? You see, that's the kind of faith he speaks of that starts the list. Like in chapter 13, he says, faith to remove mountains. All of us have faith. But those extraordinary times when God would, would just zero in on somebody and right then give him the ability to believe God like he's never believed God before in the midst of an impossible situation. Well, to me, it's no different in the last gift. Because if, if the first gift starts the list and begins to set the pattern, you can't take the last gift and change it. 
So not only is it implicit, the, the, the regular discernment we can have by growing in the word of God, but it has to shift into a different gear. The times when God just supernaturally, extraordinarily moves upon a person with a gift of discernment, of knowing what a person's doing, even though it may appear to be right, but being able to call that person forth. And even as the scripture teaches in the three offices of the church, to cast out the demons with absolute, with absolute power and authority that God had given to them. There were times in their day, as there may be an hour from time to time, that God chose to do it this way. But if you're looking for a pattern, this is the thing I keep saying. If you're looking for a pattern of this extraordinary move upon somebody to give them that spiritual discernment, if you're looking for a pattern, you're not going to find it beyond those three extraordinary offices that were first there. You see, there are only two offices in the church today. And that's the office of elder and the office of deacon. You know, how do you know that? Because they're the only one to give the characteristics of how they must live before they can be in that office. The other three seem to disappear right off the page. We don't have apostles like they had them then. We don't have prophets like they had them then. We don't have the evangelists like they had them then. That was in the early formation of the church that we see these. There were extraordinary offices which were endowed with extraordinary gifts. The offices of the apostles and the evangelists and the prophets. You know, the Apostle Paul in Acts 16, to me, gives us an illustration of how God would use them in an incredible way. You know he had discernment, but there was supernatural discernment that was given to him from time to time. Look in Acts 16 and verse 16. I just want you to see this. We've read this scripture, I believe, in one of the earlier messages of our series here, but I want to go back to it because there's something that just pops out. It just, it, to me, it just clears a bell. Acts 16 and verse 16. It says, and it happened as, they were, as we were going to a place of prayer, a certain slave girl having a spirit of divination met us. Now Luke is writing this. Who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune telling. Verse 17, following after Paul and us, she kept crying out saying, these men are bondservants of the most high God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Do you see something interesting there? They're telling the truth. Here's a gal that's walking around and later on Luke writes it and goes back and identifies the fact that she's under the spirit of the devil and she's telling the truth about Paul. And she continued doing this for many days but Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the spirit, for many days, for many days, why is it that God did not move upon him with that extraordinary gift of discernment before that one day but on one day, it says he was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her at that very time. On that day, on that day, we read that as if Paul could just do that at a whim. I don't believe that. I believe God had to move upon him to help him discern the spirit of what a person was doing, then gave him the power to cast out that demon. And it wasn't his power, it was God in the man casting out the demon. You can walk through scripture and see over and over and over again those instantaneous times when God moved upon one of these men, the early officers of the church, and gave them immediate understanding of the spirit that was in control of whoever they were dealing with, and then immediate authority to take command over that and cast those demons out. That was something that was not what we're talking about in Hebrews 5. Hebrews 5 simply talks about the fact that we have discernment. We can know if we're living according to the word of God. Can God still do that kind of thing today? Absolutely. But is it a pattern? No. God can still do that. I've witnessed it on at least two occasions in my life. Only two. I'm 55 years old. Only two. Only two. Manly Beasley used to come to our church, if many of you remember that in the days. He's gone on to be with the Lord now. Manly Beasley was sort of a strange guy. I remember one time he walked up to the pulpit. He started speaking, closed his Bible and said, no way, they're not ready to hear. Went over and sat down. <laughs> We were here for about five minutes, you remember. Everybody turned and walked out. <laughs> you never know what man is going to do next. Manly came one day, he was standing out, and Rick, you remember this very well. We were standing out in the parking lot over here behind the old building. And Manly walked up to me, we were talking. A, a man walked up and just said something to Manly and turned and walked away. Manly wheeled on me and he said, who is that man? And I gave him his name. He said, the man is a homosexual and the man wants to work with the children in your church, immediately deal with him. I didn't know that. I grabbed Rick. Rick and another went to him. The man confessed it, and then we found out that is exactly why he came to this church, and God spared us unbelievable misery 
by one man's ability to discern. Did Manley have that all the time? You kidding me? I was in a conference in Switzerland. Go, I wasn't a speaker. I just went to the conference. Manley was there. Manley had the choice of discerning who was going to speak in the conference. There was a man from England that he chose to close the conference that everybody already knew if, that if he had the hand of God on his life, we're the Pope of Rome. And certainly Manley would have the discernment to know that. Did Manley have it? No, he didn't have it. He chose the wrong man to close that conference and almost ruined the whole conference. Well, now wait a minute. Standing out here on the parking lot, he could have hung a shingle up and everybody comes to see him. No, 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 it's extraordinary and it's instantaneous and it's only when God decides to give it and then God takes it away and you don't hang a shingle out and say, I have this gift. It doesn't work that way. I had one experience of that in my life, only one. I hope it's the only one I ever have. A man used to call me at home in Jackson, Mississippi. He wouldn't tell me who he was, but he kept calling. He said, Wayne, what must I do to have eternal life? And as soon as I'd start to answer, he'd hang up on me. This went on day after day after day after day after day. Never would tell me who he was. Never would hold a conversation. The moment I started witnessing, he hung up the phone. One day he called. He said, let me tell you who I am. Gave me his name. And I thought, well, maybe we're getting somewhere. He said, can you come to my house? Well, at that time I was young. I didn't have any sense, I guess. And I just said, I'm going to go. I got in the car driving over there and then it began to slowly dawn on me where I was driving, the worst part of town, the absolute worst part of town. And I'm thinking, well, that's okay. I'm a pretty big guy. I can handle five or six. I think I can at least hurt them before they get me. I'll be all right. But the more I began to go, the more God began to impress on me, Wayne, you don't have not, you've got a clue what you're about to deal with. I've never had that happen to me in my whole entire life. And God began to put on my heart, you make sure you walk into this situation as clean as you've ever been before me. You make sure you're sensitive to what I'm gonna do. Walked up to the trailer, knocked on the door. The man let me in. We sat down at his table, no phone. The first thing I noticed was no phone in the house. I'm thinking, I'm in trouble. He said, let me ask you a question. I said, what's that? He said, you believe in Jesus Christ? I said, I do. I've told you that, tried to tell you that on the phone. He said, do you believe Jesus Christ died and resurrected and ascended with the Father? I said, I do. He said, do you believe that Jesus Christ has power and authority over demons? I said, I do. He said, do you believe that Jesus Christ lives in believers? I said, yeah, absolutely. He said, then do you believe that you right now have the power over a demon because Christ lives in you? I said, no, sir. But Christ who has the power still lives in me. He has that power. I don't have any power. He said, come here. I'm thinking, oh, dear Lord, what is next? I am pretty stupid. I, I wish it could have happened yesterday. I could have a whole lot better theology to back everything up I'm saying. But at that time, I didn't know enough to get out of the water. And I walked back to the back room and there was a man in bed lying flat on his back in a drunken stupor. You ever seen somebody in a drunken stupor? I mean, a real skid row drunk. The kind that drinks shaving lotion. The kind that when they go into a stupor, you can't even find a heartbeat. Have you ever been around somebody like that? I thought they were kidding me and I thought they were setting me up, but I kept them being impressed. There's something going on here, Wayne. I'm giving you a discernment. Of the, you're not dealing with something that's of me. You're dealing with something that's definitely of Satan. And I picked the guy up and dropped him. I took a bucket of cold, ice cold water and poured it in his face and didn't even flinch. <clears throat> As I was standing there, I didn't know what to do. He said, well, preacher man, do something. And boy, God was, was all, I was saying, oh God, I don't know what to do. And God just impressed on me to pray. And I began to pray, but I kept my eyes open and I didn't bow my head because I wanted to make sure <laughs> what was going on in that room. And as I began to pray, I said, oh God, I haven't got a clue what's going on here, but I sense that you're wanting to do something. And I just ask you right now that you'll just take command of this. this and I have never heard those words, never spoken those words. I want to tell you something. I saw a man that was in a drunken stupor. I looked at him and he was suddenly pinned against the wall, glaring at me with eyes like I have never seen a person glare at me before. And something happened to me in that moment that has never happened to me since, and I hope it doesn't, but happened to me that day. It overwhelmed me with peace to know that I stand in the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ who has conquered darkness and conquered sin and conquered evil. And I said, David, don't worry, I'm not praying to you. I'm, I'm towards you, I'm praying towards somebody else. And I, I just prayed what I knew to pray at that time. And I watched a man sober up, stone sober, from being totally in a drunken stupor. What happened? I don't know, I don't particularly wanna know. I just know it was one of those experiences in my life that God seemed to move in on me 
and checked out the next day and I hadn't seen that experience since and I don't want it. People that go looking for that to me are a little perverted to start with. But I did watch the man sober and the fellow who had called me said, I don't believe this. I do not believe this. He said he hadn't been able to stand up. I've been having to carry him around the house, even to the bathroom. He said, all right. He said, told the guy, I said, David, sit up. And David sat up. <laughs> and I said, David, who is Jesus Christ? He said, he's Christ, the son of God, who died on a cross to save me from my sin. Reached out and grabbed me by the arm and said, could I receive him as my Lord and Savior? Became a believer and six weeks later was an usher in our church. And we discipled him all the way through the process. That happened one time in my life. Do you think I went home and said, wow, I'm something else. I think I'll hang a little shingle up and say, hey, you got a problem with the demons? Come see Wayne. Absolutely not. I'm not in the business of chasing after darkness. I'm in the business of preaching light and I'm in the business of preaching Jesus Christ. Now, folks, God can do anything he wants to do at any time. That's the only reason I throw that in there. But if you're going to look for a pattern, if you're going to look for somebody who has the gifts of distinguishing of the spirits and you call him and he can help you, you better not put that in the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 10. It won't fit. The same men who had that instantaneous ability when God chose to give it to them, two days later may not have had any ability whatsoever. Paul couldn't even heal himself, couldn't heal Trophimus, couldn't, couldn't do any of the miraculous. Ones. These things happened when God chose for them to happen. And they're in extraordinary category. But can we discern? Yes. Yes, if we live according to the word of God, we can test the spirits. But I'm talking about the extraordinary. You only find that as a pattern with the early officers of the church of Jesus Christ. You know, why is it not a pattern today? Well, if you'll think with it, put your noodle together. When this was written to the church of Corinth, the canon of scripture had not yet even been completed. Do you realize that? And do you realize that, that Corinth itself was, was the city that was infested with satanic activity? More idolatry in Corinth than there was in any city of any church that you'll study in the New Testament. I mean, the, it was amazing how that infiltrated into the church. And so why does Paul bring it up? Do you also realize that this is the only epistle that it's even mentioned in the all of scripture? Why would it only be mentioned here? Because if anybody needed the extraordinary gift of distinguishing the spirits, they needed it. They, they had the ordinary if they'd have just lived the right way, but they needed an extraordinary because they were being bombarded from every idolatrous force that you can possibly imagine. You see, we live in a little differently today. We live surrendered to Christ and Christ now lives in us and, and Christ does through us. He is our warrior. He's the garment of chapter four of Ephesians is the armor of chapter six and it's Christ Jesus living in us. And when we surrender to him, we live in the victory that he gives to us. We don't run around afraid of demons. We don't run around afraid of all that kind of stuff. Our victory is in Jesus Christ. You know, years ago, the church of Satan sent out people to our church service. I don't know how many of you were here when that happened. But back in the old building, they came in and would sit all over our service and while we were praying and singing, they were standing or sitting, praying aloud to Satan. And they wrote me letters and had blood on the bottom of it, said, we're gonna kill you and kill your family. Never did spell my name right. I, I personally find that a little humorous. But they threatened our lives. But did we ever bind them? Did we ever get a group and surround the church and bind the devil? No, we didn't bind him because if you bind him once, why do you have to bind him twice? We just simply kept on preaching Jesus, kept on preaching light, and after a while they got frustrated and they left and they've never been back. You see, we live in the victory God has already given to us. Why do we need this extraordinary? Well, I don't know. At time from time, maybe that'll happen in your life. Only once in my life, maybe it'll happen in your life. But don't look for it as a consistency or a pattern. That extraordinary gift was only given to the people who held the extraordinary offices of that day. And another thing, do you realize that only one angel, one angel, one measly angel, sorry fellas, one measly angel, <laughs> they're here today, you just can't see them. God's gonna send one measly angel down here to this earth to put Satan in the pit for 1,000 years. How many, how many angels could Jesus have called on the cross? Legions. And it's not Michael the archangel. It's not Gabriel. You know who it is? I think I know who it is. I think I've told you before. Hark. The herald angel. <laughs> hey, hark, come here. 
Take this key, go down, grab the sucker, throw him in the pit for a thousand years. He's going to lock the door. And the church of Jesus Christ runs around giving Satan all the prime time. No, sir, we live in a, in a different time. We've got the word of God. The Holy Spirit of God lives in us. And we preach light. We preach Jesus. And that is our victory over Satan. And he gives us discernment to a line. This is of God. This is not of God. If we'll live, surrender to him. When you get hung up in the extraordinary things that God did back in the early church, you're making the same mistake Corinth made. Those extraordinary things were only found as a pattern with those who had the extraordinary offices. And we don't have those offices anymore. But what we do have is the Word of God. Elders who don't, are not the only ones who can hear from God, but the ones appointed to make sure God's heard. Deacons who become the servants of the church, not a position of honor, but a position of service. That's what we have today. And we have everything that God has given us for life and godliness. And we don't need that extraordinary discernment that God gave to many of them, unless God chooses to see fit that it's necessary. From time to time, we may see that but we certainly don't hang a sign on the door and say, this is my gift. Call me, I'll help you. No, run to the cross. Jesus has already helped you. Find the victory you have in him. You know, my time's out, but listen, don't get hung up in the gifts. I'll tell you something, if my preaching on these gifts divides this church and you've got a serious spiritual problem, you don't hang up with gifts, you attach yourself to the giver. That's the focus of your life. That's the whole theme of the 12th chapter. That's the whole theme of Corinthians. People attached to everything but Jesus Christ. You know, I, I told someone to pray for me as I'm walking through this because I know how many of you disagree with me. I know that. I'm aware of that. Matter of fact, some of you are praying that I'll come out of my misunderstanding and into the understanding that you say you have. But you don't know something about me. You don't know that when I came here, I came out of the very thing that you're asking God that I might come into. And I want to tell you who brought me out. <laughs> a little man sitting right down here. Spiros of the eyes. Some of the things I preached in the first few months I was here, I'm just praying God will burn those tapes and nobody will ever be able to find them. One day Spiros walked up to me and says, Wayne, you said something Sunday that I have never seen in all the years of my study. That, that should have been my first clue. And he said, it's great. Can you show me that in the Greek text? And contrary to what our friend Paul Crouch said about people who love doctrine, it was people that love doctrine that got my feet back on the ground and for 17 years now has kept me solid on that ground. So quit praying that I'll get to where you are. I've already been there and it's no fun. I'm where I am because God's word has put my feet on the ground. Boy, some of you look sad and some of you look mad and some of you look glad. <laughs> hey, one thing, good thing about getting older, I don't give a rip anymore. It's just what God says and that's it. That's just the way I see it. And if we don't start calling, <laughs> hey, you keep coming. <laughs> Henry, you keep coming. I know who that is. <laughs> I'm telling you. And I'll tell you, in Chattanooga, Tennessee, in this city, we better start getting our feet on the ground. For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org. 